Father, thank you again for your grace, for the fact that you continue to initiate toward a fallen human race. You continue to call people out and you continue to honor the intercessory ministry of your Son on our behalf. We're thankful for his great um, sacrifice on the cross for our salvation. And tonight we thank you especially for the preservation of Scripture and for truth that the Holy Spirit illuminates to our hearts. We thank you through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Um, we've been talking about um, the doctrine of sanctification because this series um, dealing from Solomon on through the fall of Israel is much more centralized on the workings of God's kingdom rule than before. We're dealing before, we're dealing with the Exodus and how God intruded into history, God disrupted history. Well, what we're dealing with now is a discipline that God used to reign in His kingdom. So that's why, again and again, as we go through these stories, they have interesting political overtones, they have interesting principles, but the big idea is they're illustrating principles of sanctification. How does God deal with people who are in a covenant relationship with Him? And it's all preparatory, of course, to the New Testament. But it's where you can see sanctification. And as I've said before, to me, the Old Testament stories have had a lot more influence, I think, in clarifying the New Testament for me than the New Testament. I mean, I appreciate the New Testament, of course. But the New Testament presupposes that you're really aware of Old Testament history. Uh, for example, we've gone through um, the glories of Solomon. And we've, you know, everyone in the Thursday night class is basically acquainted with uh, Solomon's magnificent um, accomplishments. And what a, you know, guy built two navies. Uh, he, he had a treasury that was full of gold. Uh, had a gold-backed currency that was stable. He built a stable economy for his people. Um, Israel was in its heyday in Solomon's time. Very wise individual. Um, a, a lot of the Old Testament was written in Solomon's time, the men around him. So there was a lot of things going on in, the, in that period. Well, the New Testament has a little passage in there where Jesus is talking to the people and Remember, he makes one statement and he says, one greater than Solomon is here. And you can read that if you're not acquainted with Solomon's era and just, oh, well, that's a nice thought. One greater than Solomon's here. Well, if you know the Old Testament now, that wasn't just a small comment. What he was saying when he said one greater than Solomon was as Solomon ruled his kingdom that I'm going to do the thing on a global scale. That's what he meant by greater. Solomon did it for Israel. I'm going to do it for the entire world. And my reign will eclipse the wisdom of Solomon. Well, if we know that Solomon got into commerce, Solomon uh, built a culture economically. Uh, he built it in uh, business. He built it uh, in, in, co in commerce. He built it in worship. He built it in architecture. He went into all the sciences. He dealt with the arts. He promoted musical worship. So when you hear that little innocent quickie 
in the New Testament text, one greater than Solomon is here. Uh, all of this is wrapped up in that little three or four words. And that's what I mean. The New Testament takes on depth when you know the Old Testament background. And Jesus and the apostles, keep in mind, they were well-educated Jews, and they knew their Old Testament cold. I mean, there are rabbis today that have memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. I mean, it just stuns you that anybody can do that. But that's what they do. I mean, there are people that do that. Um, I had a Hebrew professor one time that was in Israel, and uh, he met this Jewish teacher. And just, he, you know, he, I mean, he says, go, go ahead, you know, cite a verse. And I mean, he wasn't getting John 3.16 either. Um, and uh, this guy could tell you the Hebrew context backwards and forwards, right around that area. So um, that's a picture and a glimpse of what the New Testament disciples knew and many of the people they preached to. Well, today, tonight I want to go start with going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to a, new te- uh, a thing that's quoted in the New Testament a lot. And let's see if we can do the same thing here and start with this Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 5. And we're going to expand now on the, the doctrine of sanctification a little bit more. Now, last time we went through certain uh, parts of this doctrine of sanctification and we reviewed these areas. Um, And I mentioned that David... Just a minute, let me turn the mic off so I can get my... Um, Remember that each of these areas is illuminated by historical illustrations. And we said that one of these here, the long-term growth and the existentially present decisions, that is, obey or disobey decisions, one of the great um, examples of that was David. Because David's whole life is a picture of one of the basics in sanctification. What a first aid. What is spiritual first aid? It's confession of sin. How, when you're out of fellowship, do you get back in fellowship? Agonize, go through some religious ritual, uh, talk to 15 people. What do you do? Well, the Bible's very clear. It's one thing. It's confess sin before God. And that has to be dealt with. And yes, there are consequences, and yes, we know, and David knew that, but the central issue, so that's why Psalm 51 is such a critical psalm. There are parallel psalms, by the way, to Psalm 51. The other two psalms that link up with Psalm 51 is Psalm 32 and Psalm 38. So those are three psalms that uh, encapsulate this whole idea of confession. And it's just basic. It is fundamental to the spiritual life to know how to deal with that. Because if you don't know how to deal with that, you're not going to deal with anything else. Because that's, that's the prerequisite for prayer. We can't pray out of fellowship, really. Uh, we can't do much any, anything out of fellowship with the Lord. So that is, is the heart of first aid right there, spiritual first aid in his confession. So every Christian 
should know that one backwards, forwards, and sideways. That's just basics. So that's why David's life is so nice, because you can identify with a guy. There's enough details in the story and enough uh, consequences of what he did. And the guy's going on with the Lord, but he's having to wade through all the consequences. Uh, I mean, that's just like we, we are. So we can identify with David. Well, tonight we're going to introduce the fact that as David illuminated this particular area of the doctrine of sanctification, Solomon's era is going to illuminate this one. The aim of sanctification is loyalty to God. Remember we said that's the core, that's the big idea. And you remember, there's some ideas that go with this that we have to remember. And that is that when we talk about the aim of sanctification, we're talking about something that had to happen even if there were no sin. And we went back, remember, to Adam. And we said, here's the point of creation. Here's when Adam fell. Now, had all through this period, between the time he was created until the time he fell, he was challenged to obey God. Was he sinful? No. So here you have a sinless man who is challenged to obey God. Well, if he was sinless, why was he challenged to obey God? He was given a choice, and the idea was historical obedience yields righteousness. So, Adam, before the fall, there's no sin involved. Still, the aim is there, and the aim is to produce loyalty to God. The second illustration of this principle is Christ because the second Adam does the same thing. He's born. He dies. At no point in that time span did he ever sin. And yet, the New Testament says in Hebrews, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Well, why did he have to learn obedience? If he was sinless and the aim of sanctification is loyalty to God, and that's exclusively dealing with sin, what's Jesus involved with it for? So the idea is that the aim of sanctification is still there, whether or not sin is. The problem is that whereas Adam and Christ were dealing on the plus side of the, ledges, of the ledger here with a positive righteousness generating that positive righteousness by sinless obedience to God. The problem with us is that we're born sinners and we're on the negative side of the ledger. We're down here. So, since we're down there, we are in violation of God's holiness and we have to get initial... We have to, we have to be represented by a representative that beats Adam because now Adam's sinful. So Jesus Christ comes in as the second Adam. He raises us in position to His righteousness. And by the way, see, His righteousness that is attributed to us was righteousness that flowed out of His historic life. Jesus Christ, all the way and including the cross, obeyed the Lord, He obeyed the Lord, obeyed the Lord, obeyed the Lord. And the decisions to obey during His life were historically crucial decisions. They weren't just, oh, He just did it. And people have the idea sometimes, I think, in our own Christian circles, that Jesus had it easy. 
that obeying the Lord was easy for him. Because after all, I mean, he didn't have sin. Well, wait a minute. When you look in the New Testament text and you see what was going on in Gethsemane, do you call that easy? It was not easy for Jesus to obey God. It was difficult for him to obey God. And the humanity, the Bible says that Jesus learned. He learned obedience. And he learned it under pressure. And he learned it under suffering. And yet he was sinless. So the aim of sanctification holds either side of the fall. It's just that on the this side of the fall that we know, it's like we've got a weight. We've got sin down here that is in addition to the normal learning process. So, sanctification is not just overcoming sin. And we want to be clear about that because if we think just in terms of overcoming sin, we don't, we're not thinking big enough. And this is why, in that illustration I give on that chart, one of the illustrations I give to the aim of sanctification was the defeat at Ai and the victory at Ayalon. Now, why do we pick out those two historic battles as pictures of this principle? Because at Ai, what went wrong? At Ai, there was disobedience in the camp. They went out ostensibly obeying God's immediate command. The problem was that God wasn't going to give them victory as long as they were disloyalty to him. So regardless of the armies, regardless of what all the hoopla, it all fell apart because under it all there wasn't a loyalty to God. Now the other illustration we give is Ayalon, and that was, remember, the valley of Ayalon where the sun and the moon were, were stopped. And the reason that is important is because Joshua really got screwed up there, made a bad decision, was deceived. The Jews were gotten themselves into a mess where they should never have made a, a league with the Gibeonites. They, got, they, they did it wrong. They fouled up. But because they were loyal to Jehovah, he stepped in and saved their bacon. Now, what was the difference? It was back to the essential. They were being loyal to God. And that's where David excelled. David excelled because even though he had, a, he had to walk through a lot of stuff as a fallout from his previous sin, the point was the guy got back on track and he coped with all the mess, all the fallout, and he did some magnificent things for the Lord so that the prophetic, through the Holy Spirit working in men, the final analysis of David's life is that he's a man who sought after God. Now, if you can visualize David's political autobiography in today's climate with talk shows, editorials, and TV news clips, can you imagine the number of, of stuff or stories that 60 Minutes could run on David's administration? See, the point is, from the social outward point of view, he could be pulled apart. But the prophets that write the scripture, almost as though they're not really passionately concerned with those externals. They are. I mean, it's important for a testimony. But the, the basic issue that made the difference 
was that David was loyal to God. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't perfect, but he had a heart disposition to be loyal to God. And that, that got him through the mess. And he had a lot of critics, a tremendous amount of If you don't believe that he had a lot of critics, read the undertone in some of David's psalms. Why so often when you read Davidic psalms is there verses like this in them? O Lord, protect me against those that speak against me. The lions that speak against me, that gnash their teeth upon me. What is he talking about? Constant criticism. Constant, a whole orchestra of critics. And it bothered him. Like it would bother you, like it would bother me. But he walked through it because he had his eyes on the Lord, not on a bunch of people. And it's a significant lesson for us. Well, tonight, what we want to do is we want to deal with this issue of culture. And it's a, it, it, it doesn't sound like it's related to sanctification, but it is. And here's how it is. At the point when God gave Adam the command to subdue the earth, Adam was to exercise a positive volition toward God. He was to obey Him. And he would be accomplishing certain things, doing good in the garden and so forth, producing things. The production of, of this, and he and, he and Eve would have, would have had the fall not happened, uh, he and his helpmate would have gone on, raised a family, a family who would again propagate righteousness, and these people would build things, and these people would subdue the earth. They would grow plants. They would build, do hybridization. They would increase the cultivation of the land. They'd clear the areas and build gardens. Um, they would show cultural fruit. Uh, they would engage in music. They would engage in art. All those things are the culture. That's what God has called man to do. And the righteousness that's in them would flow out into the culture. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we quote this in the New Testament, but we limit its application to our own personal piety. I want to show you that that's not really correct. In verse 5 it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, it's true, with all your heart, that is personal piety. That's the inside. But, folks, the word soul there, that suke in the Greek, nephesh in Hebrew, is life in all of its details. You take a concordance and you look that word up and see how it's used. It's talking about food, eating. It's talking about craftsmanship. It's talking about praise and music. It's talking about all the human activities are included in that other word. So the first word, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that is, but we read it as though the sentence stops there. And it doesn't spill out into any creativity. But that's what it's meant with all your soul and with all your might. What's the might? The might is the, the strength of the things that men produce. So what we want to do now is come back and see what happened. What happened in history? So, let's go back to Genesis 3 a moment. And let's see the, the dilemma of culture. We have to deal with this because we live in it. I mean, right two or three weeks ago, as we said last week, there's now an Alabama judge that uh, has come up with one of the more insidious rulings that we've seen lawyers do. It gets worse every year. 
This guy took it upon himself to make the ruling that it is now illegal for Christian students in a public school to pray. And furthermore, he is going to have faculty members watch kids to see if they dare pray. So now we have the thought police in the school. I mean, you know, I mean, we can have drugs, knives, notes, but we, we can't have prayer. I mean, what more insidious thing can you have in a public classroom than a prayer? Good grief, that we're dangerous material here. So, why is this hostility there? We're going to deal with this. There's a reason why paganism, which is on the ascent in our society, is fearful of Christian culture. They have a right to be afraid, and we're going to go into that. But that's why we're dealing with culture and why Solomon's a good illustration. Let's go back now to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, we have the fall. We know certain things happen. The curse comes upon man in a man, man, male way, comes on the woman in a female way. Then immediately, in chapter 4, we have the first murder inside a family. And if that wasn't bad enough, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, we have the first city, the city of Enoch. And you go four or five generations down to verse 19, and here's what culture looks like in a fallen world. Lamech took to himself two wives, the name of one with Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So culture began with fallen man doing it. Well, there, was no other, there weren't any unfallen men to do it. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. So here's music. Here is uh, business, livestock, farming. Um, look at verse 22. She gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of implements of bronze and iron. By the way, notice it's not a bronze age and an iron age, like people say. Bronze and iron, the technologies were there. So that's the origin of culture. But what happened? In verse 23, the song of the fallen culture. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wise Elamic, heed to my speech. I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech seventyfold. Violence, murder. That's the song and the theme of pagan culture. So we come to Noah's time. And then we skip over to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis 11, what happens? Remember that verse 4, so critical? Because it's the spirit of the unbelieving pagan culture. Verse 4, this is always the theme of pagan culture onto the courtroom in Alabama. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven and let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered. Now, we, we went, took that apart two years ago, but just review. Notice what it's saying. Let us build for ourselves, not for God, for ourselves a city. We will build a city. So there's man doing it for man. A tower whose top will reach into heaven. That's a religious theme that is a counterfeit to true salvation. It is going from the earth up to heaven instead of from heaven coming down to earth. It is man with his own self-righteous bootstrap operation generating his own righteousness to become like God, knowing both good and evil. This is always the ascent of man, the, the, the attempt to ascend with his power and become like God. See, it's interesting. Fallen man hates God 
but we are made after his image. So while we hate God because we're made in his image, we always try to mimic him. It's interesting. We can't leave him alone. We say we don't want a God, but yet we do. We crave a God, and we will create gods if we have to do it ourselves. One of the proofs of the existence of God is that men can't leave him alone. Even if they deny his existence, they still want a God. Then it says, and let us make for ourselves a name. And that's the ultimate sin, because that means that all meaning, right, wrong, truthfulness, and falsehood will be defined by man. And you know what that's a fulfillment of? What did Satan say to Adam and Eve? You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. That's what he tempts. We, that's the presupposition of autonomy. We decide truthfulness and falsehood. We decide what is right and what is wrong. And so any laws that are made would be the laws that man makes. If there are rights, they're not given by God to man. They are generated by who passed the latest bill. That's what generated the right. We will make a name for ourselves. It's going on right now. Right now. Same thing. Same thing. Now we come to 1 Kings. And all during 1 Kings, we have a generation of a godly counterculture under Solomon. And we studied that. And we can go through 1 Kings chapter 4, 1 Kings chapter 5 and 7 and so on. But you remember that the highlight of this whole section is in 1 Kings 8, the dedicatory prayer. And he says that verse 23 of 1 Kings 8. Because keep in mind, we have reviewed what culture looks like on a fallen basis. Here's Adam. That's an example of the culture that was built prior to the flood. There was Nimrod. That was an example of the culture built after the flood. Then we have the godly line called out from the civilization. We have Abraham. We have Moses. We have the conquest and settlement with all of its warts and failures. And then we have the rise of Solomon and this one period in history where believers dominated the culture. It was a Bible-friendly culture. So we read this section of Scripture to see what does a Bible-friendly culture look like. I mean, is it run by a bunch of religious queers, or is it really an admirable civilization? And it's an admirable civilization. They have all the normal things that you would expect in any culture. But it's a powerfully righteous culture. It's grounded on the Mosaic Law Code. It is something that honors God. And the temple, that is the sense of his presence and worship, is central to that culture. Okay. Now we want to go to the notes because we want to, from there, go into our problem today. So if you'll go to that last handout. I want to go through the parts and finish this section tonight. There's some highlights in here that are important to notice. And there's a lot of confusion on this today about whether Christians should become involved and do this and do that. And I, I want to give some guidelines using Solomon's era. First point, page 13. Take this as an axiom. Strong sanctification. And by strong sanctification, I mean believers that have depth. 
They are well-schooled in the Word of God. When you have, and, and, and they, have, they are influential. Whenever you have strong sanctification, you will always have a culture that reflects that sanctification. It will automatically follow. You want an example today of a Bible-friendly culture that's developing right under our nose? And one aspect of it, kid, people, parents, taking their kids out of the public school system and training them at home. Now, every time I hear some people that think Christians are weird for doing this, my answer to that is, well, why do you suppose they're doing it? You know, I mean, come on. A, a woman doesn't uh, start a school in her house for her kids. That's a lot of work. Try it sometime. Parents aren't doing this because they've got nothing else to do. You know, TV's boring, and we just bring the kids home to teach them. No, no. There's a bigger reason why parents are doing it today. It's because they're fed up with what's going on, and they're making a tremendous economic and personal sacrifice to do it. So instead of criticizing the parents that are doing this, how about asking why they're doing it? The price they're paying in time and money and effort to do this kind of thing. You know, that's the question we ought to ask. Why? It gets back to what right we're doing right here. So let's go under this and look at the different part, the different responses. All I've done is I've listed four responses under that topic, historically by the Christians have made to, in the culture. The first one is some capitulate to whatever the surrounding culture establishes as public values. For example, liberal theologians, knowing the gospel supernatural claims are offensive to modern man, change the, they change the gospel to make it more meaningful, of course. So we call that a liberal capitulation. That's why people believe in evolution. That's why people go with long time spans in history. It's easier. And it is. I mean, that's the culture. That's what you learn in the classroom. That's where the millions of dollars of research all get channeled in. That's where if you do any research and you want to publish papers in a peer journal, you better believe that or you don't get published. So it's a lot easier to do it that way. That's capitulation. Now, think of the first verse we started the class with tonight. What does it say in Deuteronomy 6.5? You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Is this loving the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul? capitulate to the culture just because the culture ramrods the values and we just have to salute and say yes? No, we don't have to do that. That's capitulation. That's the coward's way out. And unfortunately, in our evangelical community, we have a lot of spiritual cowards. And the worst ones are the educated ones because they feel the peer pressure more. They're afraid of looking stupid. They're afraid of, of being called a name somewhere, or being laughed at or ridiculed. I've seen it. I've lived with the people. So that's capitulation. A second thing is a little less, less violent, and that's people who accommodate to the culture. Now, this is, the, this is what I call the evangelical gentleman's approach. Now, this idea is that we, we, we know what's out there, but you see, we want to appear righteous and obedient to the Lord, so we kind of go back in the Scriptures and see if we can possibly reinterpret the Scripture to relieve the pressure. And this is what you see happening in various parts of Genesis and so on, is we're going to relieve the pressure. Oh, we obey the Word, but let's just re-examine what the Word really is saying. That's accommodation. 
And that's a tactic that's been used. Then we have something that's uh, another way of solving the problem. It's called separation. Still others know something's wrong with the world system, but their solution is attempt separation from all present culture. Groups such as the Amish select the culture of a previous era when Christian values predominated more than at present. And there is a, I mean, you know, you read history and you rejoice that every generation of Christians didn't have to live like us. There were more favorable times spiritually to live in the history of our country. So it's only natural that you, you want, you, you are romantically attracted to the past. The selected culture is then frozen as a norm. Monasticism is another variation of the separatist approach. A common evangelical version is to disparage secular work and imply that the only worthwhile fruit in a believer's life is the fruit of evangelism and or community life inside the church. Usually this idea comes out of those who themselves are full-time Christian workers, as though the carpenter, plumber, and teacher aren't abiding in their respective full-time callings. And this goes on. And it's subtle, but it happens. And I'm frankly, I frankly think this is why we have had a resurgence of evangelicalism since the 1940s in this country. So now we're in the mid-90s, so we've had 50 years of a resurgent evangelicalism. It, it was all dead in the 30s and 40s because of the liberal modernist controversy. It was a spiritual wreckage. I mean, you talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, the nuclear, spiritual nuclear bombs were dropped in the 20s and 30s. It's a chapter that... Christians should study, and there's not a real good, good text available on what happened in the 20s and 30s, but you can get an idea if you will go back in your own families to your grandparents who lived during that period, and the thing to do is try to find out what they were reading. Go back to whoever in your family lived between 1915 and 1935, in that 20-year period, and see if any of their old books are around. And watch what they were reading. You'll see if they were people of the world, people that bought books that you normally buy, the bestsellers. You'd see things like Harry Emerson Fosdick, who is uh, the manhood of the master. And it was a pure humanistic version of Jesus. And it was the belief that technology and science would make the whole century safe and we don't need all this Bible stuff. That kind of thing went on. And so naturally the Christians wanted to get away from that and so they separated from it and then in the 40s it came out, and Billy Graham, you know, his lifespan actually corresponds nicely, church history-wise, because in 1947 he had his first crusade in Houston, Texas, Te Oil Town, USA crusade. And that's how he started. So his life has basically spanned that period of history. I haven't read his new book, but it would, I think his book would be potentially interesting because he lived through this period. But here we are, 50 years later, and what have we produced? Now, we are producing in some areas, I'm not saying this, and Christian music has done some things, but uh, we haven't had any great artwork, we haven't had really a profound influence culturally in this country. Um, uh, we, we have done in some areas of science, but that's always covered up with, uh, uh, like for example, MRIs you hear about, I mean what you don't hear about is the guy that invented MRIs that are used throughout the medical community. He's a born-again evangelical Christian, witnesses all over the place. was almost fired twice for doing it. And, but of course, we, we like the MRIs, but we don't like the fact the guy who designed that thing, had the whole idea for it, was a born-again believer. So, so anyway, the, the idea is that 
there can be an extreme form of separation that says, I am holy, the world is sinful, and the only way I can retain my holiness is stay out of it. So I withdraw, not technically to a monastery, but I just, I'm a dropout, cultural dropout. I don't participate. Well, the lesson, the last paragraph on page 13 is, how did Israel do it? When God called Abraham out, and he finally got a nation started, did Solomon say, well, we're going to just stay inside Israel, and we're going to leave those pagans alone? Remember I showed you a verse, where did he go to get the men to build his navy? To the pagans. Why did he go to the pagans? Because they had some good technologies. Did Solomon have any problem utilizing the navigational tools that the Phoenicians built? Because they were unbelievers. No. Now the question is, why didn't he? Why was he able to absorb ideas of non-Christians and yet not compromise his loyalty? Now, I grant you there was compromise later on in some other areas. But I'm not talking about those now. I'm talking about his, just his technology of his architecture, technology of his navigation systems. How was he able to do that? Answer. Because he had a belief that God, the Creator, was over all, and these non-Christians out there, these unbelievers, had to, whether they liked it or not, conform to the wisdom patterns in creation to produce anything. So if Mr. Non-Christian, Mr. Unbeliever is successful doing something, farming, business, or something else, and he's able to do it, I'm going to pay attention to that. I don't have to honor his unbelief, but I have to say, the guy still is, God made him, and he's living in God's world, and the guy might have discovered things about my father's world that I haven't seen yet. So I'm not going to be so proud that I'm a believer and I'm not going to touch the non-Christian. No. I'll suck anything out of the non-Christian I want to. Examine it, and always filter the imports. Always filter it through the grid of Scripture. But don't be afraid of... A, of looking and see what the non-Christians are doing. They still are men created in God's image. Okay. Now we come, and, and page 14, I'll give you some examples where this was done in history. At various times in church history, in the Middle Ages, Christians founded hospitals. Do you realize where the hospitals started? Now they have HMOs in the Middle Ages? You really think so? Health plans? No. Who had the health plans in the Middle Ages? There's two groups of people. Jews, because they had very good health laws. First of all, Jews didn't get sick like most of the Gentiles because they had good kosher laws and they watched what they ate and they ate smartly and they used running water and they washed their hands and they had all the hygienic law codes of the Mosaic Law. So half of them didn't get sick like the, our, our, most of us come out of European culture. And, uh, you know, our grandparents are dying of the Black Plague and they have rats in their food and all kinds of stuff. Well, who started hospitals? Who started the idea of collecting sick people together? Where do you suppose that came out of Islam? No. That come out of Hinduism? No. Guess where it came out of? It came out of Christianity. Who was it that was the nurses? It was many of the women in the church that did that. Who was it in the Black Plague that stayed in the villages? to help the people that were dying, Christians. And by the way, that's an interesting point of history. You know what happened in the Black Plague? All the priests took off out of the villages. 
it left the Christian layman in charge, and they, had, they didn't have any Bible written in the language of the people, except Latin. They couldn't read Latin. People couldn't read Latin. And they hadn't memorized the Mass. So what do you suppose happened in the Middle Ages? There was a drive to translate the Bible into the language of the people. That came out of the Black Plague. Everybody thinks the Black Plague was the worst thing. That was one of the things that God used to stimulate people to get into the Word of God. Interesting side note to history. Okay. I, I, I just cite this one because it's so nice, this little quote by Rush Dooney. Just look at the first sentence. On, on halfway down page 14. Unbelief does not give superior wisdom, nor does regeneration make men idiots in the affairs of the world, that we should turn the management of society over to unbelievers. I think that's a great quote. You don't become an idiot when you become a Christian. world thinks so, but that's all right. Let them think that. All right, let's go now to the second point in culture. Halfway down page 14. A second point in the view of culture. Biblical culture has a unified view of life. Remember what we said about Solomon? He had his, his students who could think through botany. They could go over here and study geology. They could study navigation. They could go into any of the subjects and thrill by it. You know what I think is the problem in school, why kids are bored? I was one of those. I sat in a classroom as a non-Christian, and I couldn't wait. There's a few subjects I liked. I like kind of like math, a little bit of science stuff, and the rest of it, forget it. And the reason was because I couldn't see any purpose in it. I just distinctly remember, and it's too bad because the teachers were probably good people. I remember in history and social studies, drill, 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 drill. We had to do ancient history, European history, and then we had to memorize all the dates. And you'd go home on Friday night and you'd study for the test Monday morning and burp up all the dates and then forget them by Wednesday and there's a new set to go over the next weekend for the next test. And that was my picture of history. It's just a period of burped up dates about ten weeks in a row. And history's going nowhere, no lessons to learn, just remember the dates, no problem. Well, that didn't really turn me on. You know when I got interested in history? When I became a Christian. And I realized that history is under his control. He has lessons for us in history. We better study it. We better get serious about this stuff. This isn't just for the classroom. This is to teach us about our Father who rules history. So, how can you be bored? You've got an infinite God playing a super neat chess game with man down through history. That is boring? Excuse me. I don't think so. So, it's the idea that Scripture, God's mind is behind everything. And so, biblical culture will always look at life from a unified viewpoint. You can slip from music to art to technology to others and not feel like you're going from one world to another planet when you do that. Instead of this idea we have in our society, you've got to be a specialist over here. You've got to be a specialist over here. And you can know this and you know more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. And this is specialization. Well, that's not biblical culture. Biblical culture doesn't worship volumes of knowledge. What biblical culture looks for and the pattern for it is to see God's hand in it. 
but it is aggressive. It does go out on these other areas, and we have the Solomonic model. When you think of biblical culture, don't think of a monastery, okay? That's the big idea. Think of what Solomon did. He was outgoing. He engaged the world in every area. That's what sanctification should do. Okay, coming over to the next point. Here is why the judge in Alabama is upset. Page 15, third point. Biblical culture points to future victory. If growing loyalty to God always produces something of biblical culture, then final complete loyalty to God is going to do what? If partial obedience to God produces a partial biblical culture, what is full obedience to God going to produce? A total culture. A worldwide, global culture under Christ's return. Decided he wasn't going to do anything else but create music to vote the Word of God. And he produced the, this great piece of music in three weeks. Now, think of what the creativity that was. Think of Bach every week writing new pieces of music for the worship service. Not just playing and rehearsing a new piece. He wrote a new one. He composed a new piece of music every week. Now, these are the creative geniuses. And they lived in a sinful world with painful bodies, they had their own sanctification problems. What do you suppose it's going to look like when at last the evil is removed? The proliferate, the potential of creativity in man will be unleashed on a scope that will astound us. So, biblical culture points to that. The hunger that man is going to produce this. Now, I have a section in here, middle part of page 15, about Proverbs. And those of you who read Proverbs, like I suggested that in this section, is sometime to read through Proverbs. You were probably aware that in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, this lady wisdom shows up. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor, a female metaphor for wisdom. And you might have been puzzled over why wisdom is pictured as lady here. And there's two ladies, Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. Now, why are these two characters, we'll, we'll put them in quotes because they're, they're metaphorical, why is wisdom per, looked upon as a female? It's a major theme in Proverbs, can't escape it. It's deliberately stuck in there. So we have to kind of look and say, wait a minute, why, why, what's the femaleness of wisdom all about? Well, that paragraph, if you read it through, what I show you is that if you go back in the garden to Adam, Adam had, was given a calling from God. Then God created Eve as an Acer. As an Acer. And that is translated in our Bible as a helper or a helpmate. This is the English rendition of it. But people read that and don't look at it carefully. A helpmate to do what? What came first? Adam was told by God to subdue the earth. He had a calling. And he was alone. Now, what's the role of the Acer? See, it, it starts to gel now. Because the calling of the human race cannot be done without this helper, the female. 
She's always there. It can never be accomplished apart from her. She is the one who finishes it off. And that's why, if you look in this section, I give you Exodus quotes, I give you several New Testament quotes, where you see the same theme. The woman is the one who completes a culture. She is the one who finishes it off. She adorns it. The guy builds the house, and who decorates it? Good illustration. The woman's essential, or you can't get the culture finished without her. And that's why wisdom is pictured as a lady. She is man's helper. Wisdom has an analogous relationship. If you're stupid and foolish, you can't build anything worthwhile. And the Bible says you need wisdom like every man needs a woman. It's absolutely essential. So this, this, this whole thing. Now you come down to a more profound statement. The last paragraph on page 15, what does the New Testament do? It extends the concept of wisdom and calls Jesus our wisdom. Now, that's another one of these little New Testament words that we read fast and never understand what's, what's, what Paul just said. Because Paul knows that, well, you know, he, he would have said to us if we asked him about, well, Paul, what did you mean by that? What? Did you read Proverbs recently? What's the matter with you? Open your Bibles. And he would have expected us to know that when he called Christ our wisdom, he was calling Jesus Christ something very profound. He was identifying Jesus Christ with Proverbs 8. The wisdom that pre-existed the world. If you doubt that, the passages where he emphasizes Jesus as wisdom are exactly the passages where Jesus is the Creator and His does everything by the Word of God, Colossians 1, Hebrews. Watch the context when, when Jesus is referred to as wisdom. Okay, what is Jesus going to do? Is He going to come back? Yes, He is. Now, if He is the wisdom of God, what is He going to produce? He is going to produce a culture the likes of which history has never seen. The grandeur of Solomon is nothing of the grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let it never be said that the evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing church squashes creativity and culture. If we do, we're out of it. There's something wrong with us if we don't encourage these things. I'm so pleased to hear uh, Dennis Durham interested in doing some drama. And I understand a lot of people are, are interested in what he's doing. And I think that's great. The first time it's ever happened around here. And, and it's maturity. It's a slow maturing that people are feeling like now they can express themselves. They can release some of that creative energy and produce something. So culture is important. And the Bible predicts... Now, if you turn on page 16, this is the problem the pagan has. Every time biblical culture begins to grow, you start a culture war. And I predict that this is one of the things that's going to blow up in our face and it, we might as well know it's going to come. Someday, you mark my words, the pagans that run society are going to come down hard on this whole homeschool, home movement, home teaching movement. And the reason is they can't control it. It terrifies them to think that parents are instilling biblical values in their kids and they don't control it. That is a terrifying thought. Now, I'll tell you why. It's not just, I'm not saying they're bad people. Listen to, listen to me out, what I'm saying. 
Let's understand the psychology of what's happening here. And to do this, let's put ourselves in their position. Okay? Or the position of any Christian. I'm not saying that homeschooling is a thing. This is just an issue. I mean, there's a lot of godly Christians trying to teach in the public schools. We ought to pray for them. What a mess they have to face every day. And the reason is because the system is overwhelmingly against them. They can plan, do lesson plans and culture and pray for their kids, and then they still have to work within this oppression that happens. So, biblical culture to the unbelieving pagan is a frightening thing. By having done on a small scale what God created man to do, biblical culture reminds him of the foolishness of himself. On his autonomous basis, he knows he never can fulfill his proper place in history. Rebelling against wisdom in principle, he can never be fulfilled. He has no part in the final consummation of human civilization under the Son of Man. Every little piece of godly creativity reveals something of the underlying wisdom of God and creation. And like Cain hated the righteous behavior of Abel, he hates the righteous testimony of biblical culture. It will always engender opposition. Don't be shocked when it happens. Expect it. We're not living yet in the kingdom of God. Such hatred, and I'm following this because I have a little point I want to make about English classes in particular. Such hatred is why pagan school teachers and college professors target for special ridicule and attack the Puritans. To keep students from discovering the Puritan contributions to biblical culture in the West, they portray Puritanism with Arthur Miller's distorted presentation in his play, The Crucible. Students are thus kept from reading quality Puritan authors like John Milton, John Bunyan, or the writings of the Puritan leaders in Massachusetts at the time of the crucible. Here's the test. Go down to Blockbuster sometime and pull out the, the video, the crucible, and look at the cover. Well, look at what the artist did with the cover. You pull it off the shelf and you look and there's this big thing about the nasty Puritans. And it, and it says, these guys burn people. Excuse me? It didn't burn anybody. That was Geneva, Calvin, 1500. They got the wrong century, buddy. Wrong continent, wrong language, wrong group, and the wrong people. Other than that, the artist has got a real accurate portrayal of what the Puritans did in Massachusetts. And what they did to the witches, they drowned them. Opposite. They gold them. Didn't heat them. But here's this artist because he's got this image that the bad, bad, nasty Puritans burn people. And there it is on Blockbuster's little jacket on their video and it's total historic imagery. Absolutely a figment of the guy's imagination. Never happened. Okay. Biblical culture is a counterculture. Remember what I said? Solomon is an example, Israel is an example of a counterculture that disrupts paganized civilization because it points to a different standard. This is why we need to pray for those Christians out in the front lines today. Whether it's the Christian school teacher, whether it's a person like uh, Martha Williamson trying to fight with CBS over touched by an angel, that woman, uh, she needs some encouragement. Somebody was telling me, a Christian uh, person who follows it was telling me the other day, they interviewed Martha Williamson on Oprah. And Oprah asked her point blank about the scripting that goes into that Sunday evening TV. And Martha Williamson apparently was very... They had um, 
Della Reese on. Della Reese is an outspoken Christian. And I mean, she just let, let them have it. Boom, boom, boom. And, but Martha Williams apparently is much more reserved. And she said, well, you know, she says, after we write the script, we always research it and carefully go through the scripture. Now, she has certain limits. You won't see the gospel on there. You won't see Jesus on there. But at least you'll see something about God, good, and evil on there. So, I mean, just, hey, you know, I mean, yeah, it's elementary theology. It's not the advanced gospel, but give thanks that somebody can mention G-O-D without getting arrested. And she's done it. But, but people who are close to her say it didn't come easy. CBS fought her years about this program. And thank God Della Reese says that God led her to make a 10-year contract. So that program's going on for 10 years, whether CBS likes it or not. So that's what Della Reese does. She's not embarrassed about it. She's a forthright believer. And she's not going to back up because CBS doesn't like it. Now see, those are the people. That's what I'm talking about here. They know they're going to be hit. They know they're going to be ridiculed. They know they're going to be opposed. They go on anyway. So what? We're on the winning side. The rest of the people, you know, these people that are attacking us, they're all losers in a real serious way. They are cosmic and historic losers. So why should I be intimidated by losers? Okay, next point. Biblical culture expresses mature adoration of God. Remember we started the class? We said that depth produces breadth. A deep relationship with the Lord will always spill over and form some sort of culture. When you have a lot of biblical culture like you had in Solomon, what did 1 Kings 8, what was it all about? It was worship. The grandeur of a biblical culture will focus on God. It will promote worship. Worship will be easy in a Bible-friendly culture. There will be stimuli sowed all over the place for worship of God. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to apologize for praying somewhere. That's the mark of a biblical culture. And down at the bottom, page 16, if you'll note those references, Isaiah 11, particularly in the kingdom to come, notice what the earth is filled with. There's a little prophetic passage in Isaiah, because we're going to get into more and more prophecy now on Thursday nights, that coming kingdom will be filled with a knowledge of God. There's the culture. Now, there's a concluding point of warning that we have to note on because of Solomon and his era. We can't get arrogant. There are <clears throat> those in our circles who we will call the triumphalists. These are post-millennial people who argue that the church is going to bring in the kingdom. And then after the church brings in the kingdom, then Jesus will return. We will triumph. Now, you talk about the liberals and the pagans being fearful. I mean, these people that sound like uh, Colmeny. Because they not only have said that, many of them, several of their spokesmen have said they're going to implement the Mosaic Law Code and they will have capital punishment by stoning. So, if you think that, <laughs> you know, this creates some little controversy here, this, this is it. Now, we're not those kind of people, okay? So, just relax. There are limits to biblical culture right now. Now, think about it. Why did Solomon's golden era not last? What happened? What went wrong in Solomon's time? From Solomon on down, he defected from his personal walk with the Lord. 
And when that defection, just as the culture doesn't start until I walk with the Lord long enough to get the tools to, to, to make a culture, if I'm making the culture and I depart from the Lord, the culture falls back again. It deteriorates. It decays. It rots. And we have seen what used to be a semi-Christian culture in this country rot right in front of our face. And I, I'm afraid to say that a lot of it was because back in the 19th and early 20th centuries, the church lost its moorings. We lost. We lost everything in the 20s and 30s. Can't believe the wreckage that happened. So we became very weak and the culture collapsed. Now, what does this mean? If you look at the next to last paragraph on page 17, it says it dies when the loyalty wanes. We're going to watch that happen now. And there's a parallel with the, what we've already studied in the conquest of the land. Judah, uh, Judges 2, 1 to 5, verses 20 to 23. Remember that passage? That was when the Lord said, You guys, I gave you the land. You could have conquered it all. But what did you do? You went your own way. Now, I'm telling you something. I'm not going to let you conquer the land. And do you know, those outer limits of the land offered to Joshua have never been reached. Never been reached. Never were reached in the Old Testament. They still await the Messiah to extend that boundary. Because it won't be extended until its leadership is godly. Well, it's the same thing in culture. A lasting biblical culture awaits the Messiah as David's greater son, just as the conquest awaits him. There's got to be a strong sanctification or there can't be a biblical culture. So we can make progress, but we always have to realize that today, or in any time, basically between the first and second advent, if you draw a graph, summarizing what we said here, if you draw a graph, it's like we have two limits. And the culture fluctuates in godliness between these two boundaries. The boundary here, the upper boundary, is the fact that who remains as the God of this world? It's Satan. Even in Jesus' day. So, the culture can get so far, but there's a lid, so to speak, on it. On the other hand, there's a bottom. The society can't get totally bad either. Why is that? God's restraining grace, which is not going to be removed, by the way, until the tribulation. So, as long as the restraining grace of God is not removed, society will never become 100% pagan. In any, no matter how crummy it is, there will always be something somewhere of the truth in it. Eventually, in the tribulation, when that restraint is pulled off, then you have demonic influence galore. But today, God has worked it out so that one area of the world may be demonic, may be oppressive, may be anti-Christian. Then there'll be another place in the world that'll be open to the gospel. Then there'll be another place that's closed. Another place that's open. Another place that's closed. And it's a little game of chess that's going on right now. So in our time, what's happening in America? Well, we had freedom. But when you start to see lawsuits that are settled the way that one was in Alabama, that's scary. Because that creates court precedents that will be cited by other rulings. And that's why one of the things you can pray for is some of the Christian attorneys that are going to bat. For some of the, there's some very, very serious judicial questions going on today, and they hinge on the ultimate standard of who makes the standard. 
mean, this episode with the, the judge who can't have the Ten Commandments in his courtroom. And you think about it. Good night is that stupid. What is the basis for law? Subtract the Ten Commandments and what do you have left as the basis for law? You know what you have left? Arbitrary political might. That's all you got left. Might makes right. If you don't like that, you've got to have an ethical basis for law. Where do you get that from? God and His Word. Ten Commandments. So you take that away, you're going to have this left. So we've concluded now, this, this tonight, with Solomon. We're done. We're going to start moving in now to the rest of Kings, and we're going to watch how God disciplines His people. So this is not a pleasant period of history, but it's a period of history in which we can learn. Um, God really wallops His own. And there's some very serious discipline that goes on. There's, there's great grace, but there's also great discipline. And finally, after about five or six more weeks, you'll wonder, well, where's the light at the end of the tunnel? And exactly at that point is when we emerge into prophecy. Because the Old Testament at that point, who arises but prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and what are they saying? There is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's not going to be by this group. The group that's running, the group of believers that are doing this, that are failing miserably, it's going to have to come from outside. There's going to have to be something else happen. And that's the movement we're going to see. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word and for your faithfulness. And we pray that uh, we'd all have uh, safe and Christ-honoring holidays. If we ask this in his name, amen. That's right. That's right. I mean, uh, Solomon could have, that's where he got in trouble in the sense that uh, royal intermarriages worked to keep peace in the world system. So Solomon saw that and he said, hey, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll marry a couple of women and solidify these relationships. So, yeah, and he made the wrong inference. Just because it worked didn't mean it was right. And I didn't intend to imply that. It was just that where things do work, we want to pay attention to see if, in fact, it is okay. You're talking about things like hypnosis. Um, um, I mean, there have been questions about acupuncture, and um, there's a great deal of emphasis now on vegetarian diets and that sort of thing. Um, and some of these have positive things about them. And I think the only safe way to proceed is to be sure that you can worship the Lord Jesus Christ aggressively in the midst of it. That's kind of like a spiritual litmus test. And um, I think we are challenged today by these kinds of things. Um, We've we got some scary things going on with, with uh, genetic engineering. You know, you know, it's true. I mean, my boy works with it at Johns Hopkins. I mean, they can do neat things in the DNA to try to track down, for example, does he, my, my son's been, what, two or three years now? He's been working with this syndrome that's afflicted families for generations where they have nail, nail patella syndrome where there's just deformities. And he, they're trying to find out what is it, how does this get started? Where is it going? So there's, there's a bona fide truth that there's design in here and there's the effect of the fall on the human gene. And so you, you want to you, you deal with that but then, it's scary because now there's all kinds of ethical questions that arise. If I can map your gene, and I'm a health insurance company, 
what am I going to do to your premium? And then do we all get our premiums set by our gene map? Well, I mean, you could be born into a family with a bad gene and all of a sudden you've got a health insurance premium and now you can't afford. And that may, be, that may be a totally wrong inference because it may not be. We may have a genetic disposition towards something, but that doesn't mean that we're destined to it, that we're locked up to it. So there's that question also. Um, there, there's all kinds of things, and I think that it's going to challenge us to get into the Word as much as we possibly can. And I think the Old Testament is important because the Old Testament touches a lot of culture. The New Testament doesn't. New Testament assumes that you know the Old Testament. And when you, I, I think, for example, for example, um, uh, in hypnosis and those sort of things, the Bible tells us that there is such a passivity that goes on, um, and this acts like a vacuum cleaner to suck up any demonic influences that are in the environment. Um, questions have to be asked about why do I need hypnosis anyway? Is that the only thing that can work here? Um, I don't know that much because I haven't studied much about hypnosis, so I, I'm not particularly um, skilled to say anything about that. But I would surround it with as much of the scriptures I could and trust that the Lord will illuminate me in this situation. I'm, I'm actively seeking as well. I mean, I'm not trying to close him off. And that's where our, we have to keep our prayer channels clean that God will guide us. And if this isn't of him, that he'll make it clear. Because we have to walk by faith. And to walk by faith, I have to know what I'm doing. And if I don't know what I'm doing, then I shouldn't be doing it. And so I think the protection of in getting involved in, say, this, or getting involved in that, is if you can't walk by faith, then don't do it. Even if it may, it may be right. But I think the model in the New Testament is how Paul handled the problem of eating meat. Eating meat wasn't wrong. But there were Christians in the Corinthian church and there were Christians in Rome who had come out of paganism. They knew what was going on. The people who had the best T-bone steaks in the city were the pagan temples. Prostitution went on there. Demonic worship went on there. The meats were dedicated to the gods and goddesses. But it was good meat. So Paul's answer was, objectively speaking, there's no problem with that meat. We don't care what's dedicated to Satan. The meat's good. God made it. But, he said, if you can't eat that meat without this feeling inside when your conscience that you better not do that, you better not do that, respect your conscience. Because if you run over your conscience, even if it's Christians out there who are right in the Word, they just may be more advanced in that area, they've, they've solidified their position, you haven't, and you can't allow Christian peer pressure to override your own personal conscience. Your conscience says, no, you don't do it, and the Christians have no business pushing you to do something that your conscience doesn't approve of. And that's why we all have to be, have to be gracious inside the body not to do that. And that's what Paul's saying. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So he solved that problem, and he did it gently. There's no, not any sin connected with it whatsoever. The sin, though, would come in if you couldn't walk by faith. And so the only way I can thrash out those kinds of things is to thrash them out in my heart and mind through the Word and through, through becoming more acquainted with the, the facts of the case and you know, praying about it, but, and, but meditating upon it in the light of the content of Scripture. The Mosaic Law Codes have a lot of good helps in them.
and, and most Christians don't even read the Old Testament. You know, we have New Testament Christians walk around. And that makes your Bible small. It's lighter to carry around. But um, it's, it doesn't give you the content. Anybody got anything else? Okay, well, um, hope you have some good holidays. Rest, relax. And we'll see you after the New Year's.